going on everybody it's left on red coming back at you uh my name is evan joined as always by my co-host cam cam what's going on bud not much my name's evan uh <laughs> i'm just here joined as always by my co-host cam and yep, uh, uh, i'm cam yep we're doing the old classic switcheroo just a bit of yep. just a bit of classic comedy some banters yeah one of those comedy jokes you know that used to fucking kill in the 800s <laughs> <laughs> what really made that joke which none of the people listening to this will see is the look on your face when you said that <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, I would like to apologize in advance to our listeners because we almost had to record an episode named Evan has COVID um, but turns out I just got your uh, a classic uh, throat infection kind of thing this week uh, not COVID uh, one of those legacy illnesses. As they used to say in 800, ye old <laughs> consumption. consumption. <laughs> this is an 800 themed episode. Uh, <coughs> yeah, so my, my voice might be a little bit rough and I might be coughing here and there, but I'll uh, It's okay, I apparently have the sniffles, it. so. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll get through it. Yeah. It's February and we live in a cold clime. True, yes, this is very true, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so the Oscars are bullshit. Let's just get that out of the way. Yeah, I'm surprised that you even have opinions on the Oscars. I haven't yeah. thought about the Oscars in, like, probably yeah. since I moved out from living with my parents. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> me and friends of the pod, yeah, Patrick and Ian, we were uh, uh, giving out our grievances in our group chat for mm -hmm. a while because of it. Um, you know, I'm not surprised that uh, Licorice Pizza isn't getting more love. Paul Thomas Anderson did make the movie The Master, which um, all those Hollywood sicko perverts that are Scientologists probably blacklist him for that. Sure. Um, and then Card Counter, I'm sorry, that was my number two movie of the year. And Got it's no not love even, whatsoever. Not even mentioned. Nothing. I, uh, that's, that's Paul Schrader. He, he co-wrote Raging Bull and Taxi Driver. You know? No, nobody understands the plight of the really oh, yeah, fucked yeah, up yeah. guy. Taxi driver. That's that. Uh, that's that Jimmy Fallon flick, huh? What the fuck? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh man. Um, uh, I did read something that like apparently the Academy is like making an effort to promote films that actually had wide viewership. Yeah. Um. So what was the, there was another big one that got nominated that i was surprised by but i don't know they're 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 like the power of the dog is the one that had like a shit ton of uh nominations that was a jane campion flick uh, that's on netflix maybe that was i don't know about a bunch of really creepy sex perverts living in the uh the old west or the recently old west that sounds good yeah i mean that's sort of like just my life so <laughs> You want to see a movie about like how I live? I guess go see that. Yeah, a creepy sex pervert living in like Montana in yeah. 1920 or something. Yeah, that's pretty much me. Yep, kind of nailed it. Yep, like every single detail. <laughs> yeah, dude, just bada bing, bada boom, bada bing wow, right down like, the list. Wh whoa, man! I didn't realize that I was the subject of a biopic, but yeah, here I am, flattered for sure. Yep. Um, I was just eating pasta out of the fridge. Uh, I had class ah. from 4 till 6.45, and then you were like, cool, I'm just getting home, I'm gonna, like, have a nice dinner, and then, uh, you know, hoping to start around 7, if that's okay with you, and I was like, yeah, that sounds great, man, <laughs> I'm 
I'd love yeah. to do that. And then I, so I ran downstairs. Luckily, the pasta was made with my homemade sauce, which is is not truly homemade because I use canned crushed tomatoes. But yeah, beyond that, it's it's homemade and homemade uh, gravy. Yeah, yeah, we don't call it that, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, so it's really really good. So I just had like three three big twirls. I mean, dude, you 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 really you could have uh, requested another few minutes to, to eat warm spaghetti yeah but then i couldn't have played victim uh like, that's which true <laughs> gets me which, which is so fucking hard to do so which like is a, really the the sweetest the sweetest yeah, part of it's that, yeah. it's it's way more worth it to not yeah. do that and then treat you like it's your fault um <laughs> we have such a toxic friendship dynamic at this point that i can't even pretend it's anything else i just like guilting you <laughs> like it just feels and, good and it worked i'm sitting here i'm like oh well i've kind oh, of poor fella no no it just feels good to do that to you yeah i know i know you I do know. it to me it's 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 a mutual disgusting it's habit the only thing that developed. gets you hard at this point yeah i uh without that you need the the um the blue chews well it's either that or videos of myself I have to watch videos of myself, but when I was a kid, like it's oh, it's God. weird. Okay. <laughs> God, <oops. laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, <laughs> um, we don't do ads oh. on the show anymore. We just talk about weird shit now. That's yeah. the that's the new mo. Maybe in the <laughs> summer when the vibe is a little different, we'll do ads yeah. again. We're not really doing ads anymore, folks. Yeah, we're, it's just gotten dark and weird. We're on a darker, the... <laughs> weirder uh, kind <laughs> and of Before we now. get into the, the bloody business of the episode, it's just weird, dark bants. Yeah. I play Wordle every morning, but like it doesn't me make too. me feel good. Yeah. Oh, you you play Wordle? Yeah, yeah, I've been playing for a few weeks. I play, uh, so, you know, I go, so for the listeners at home, I go into work at 6 a.m., so I take like breakfast around like 8, 10 or something like that. So while I'm eating my plain Greek yogurt, I play Wordle. Hmm. Get my brain, get my brain juices flowing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that sounds hideous. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Well, just like the way you framed it sounded kind of fucked. Like a plain Greek yogurt at 8 a.m. and you just yeah, yeah, it's good. I don't know. Wordle sounds worse when you put it that way. It, it's good. I like it. I look forward to it. That's cool. I so have you ever have you ever not solved the puzzle? Uh, I have only once failed. So I've failed twice. I've been playing yeah. Wordle for f- four weeks, five weeks. Yeah. Um, I've failed twice, and I'm actually not. So I think my whole family thought I would be really good at Wordle. Yeah. But I'm actually not very good at Wordle. Um, yeah. I'm routinely in the fours and fives. I mean, you know, I've had a bunch yeah. of twos and threes, but like, I'm routinely. I mean, in the I fours feel like the twos are luck. The, two, luck. the twos are luck. Um, Part of why I'm often in the twos and three, uh, the threes and fours, is because I guess kind of quirky words for my. Fair enough. Part uh, part of why I suck is because I routinely guess weird words to start. Like I don't play strategically. Yeah. I don't. You know, my whole family. We have a group chat. My whole family is like, "Oh, you got to guess a word with as many vowels as possible to figure out what vowels are in it." It's like that's fine, but if you do that, you're never gonna get a one. And I'm I'm gunning for a one. I want a yeah. one one day. So I guess weird words. I guess words that, like, you know, aren't a strategic good first guess, but someday you never know. Yeah. Um, but that also bites me, like, every single day, and I end up with, like, <laughs> having a really hard time. I get, a lot yeah. of, I get a lot of first guesses that yield me nothing. Really? Yeah, or, like, a one I usually up. at least get, get, like, one letter Yeah. In the first one. 
not me. Hmm. Oh, well, anyway. Um, <coughs> anything else going on with you? No, that was my pop culture reference for the day. Um, nice. No, yeah, no, I'm just doing school and, and, and this and work, and that's it. I have no anything to contribute. I have nothing. And nothing. frankly, throughout the episode, like I, 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 I can't even guarantee that I'm going to be much fun. Okay. I can guarantee it. I will. Yeah, but, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll either be fun or obnoxious. Um, well, I feel like my obnoxious is usually pretty fun. Well, it depends on the perspective. From your perspective, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there was... Not as often from my perspective. There's really only been one episode where I was obnoxious in a way that was detrimental, and I very skillfully edited that out i'm sure yeah nobody yeah very noticed. skillfully edited that i'm out. sure nobody I, i'm cam and i'm fucking wasted so. yeah I did, we did an episode where i was fucking hammered because i don't drink that much anymore and um uh yeah that's basically if you haven't noticed by now i'm not gonna tell you which one it was but it was it exists it's on there i actually don't remember which one it was oh i know you know yeah. Oh, you can say it. If it'll get us oh. listens, fucking say it. Yeah, the curious case of uh, Frank Olson. Oh, yeah, so it was, it was in the this series. Matt... God damn it. Yeah. So... <laughs> yeah, dude, you're like, like, you're say, like, your face is like beat fucking red, and you're just yeah. like burping and putting your head in your hands. And then the second <laughs> half of it, I got belligerent, and I started just being yeah. like, and yeah. you're stupid. Like, and then, and then, you, and then you, like, yeah, and then, like, you had some kind of, like, sinus thing going on, so, like, your nose is just, like, running, and you're just, like, sniffling into the mic. My nose wasn't, like, okay, you're making it seem like my nose was dripping boogers all over my face. No, it, it I'm wasn't. not saying that. I'm just saying you were just, like, <laughs> yeah, well, that, I live with a sinus thing, so you'll yeah. hear me sniff yeah. tonight. I don't want you guys to draw connections, because it's not that type of night. <coughs> Excuse me. <sighs> All right, well, I'm high on um, spaghetti. All right, well, yeah, yeah let's. Uh, you want to get into the uh, the the bloody business of the episode? No, I, I think we should put it off a little longer. I think that we should really ease them into it this time. Okay, how do you want to ease our listeners? Into what are we at? Ten minutes now. Let's give it another fifteen. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> no, let's do it. Jesus. This sounds good. This. Let's, right, cool. uh, let's let's do it. Yeah. All right. So, um, for today's episode, uh, this is actually one that um, I've been really excited to do. Cause, so, when I started, like, you know, way back in episode 24, when we did the first American Utopia episode, you know, even before I, like, started uh, this series, I had this one, like, chambered. Like I, like, I knew, you know, down the line that I was going to do an episode about, basically, you know, the, the first two, like, really successful coups by the American security state, which were... Um, 
Iran in 1953 and Guatemala in 1954. Mm -hmm. So I guess to say that I've been excited to do them, maybe, you know, that's uh, tonally not the right word. But, uh, (laughs) um, fucking amped for overseas coups, bro. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, but I definitely, you know, this is one of the ones that I had envisioned, uh, way back when, when I started, you know, drawing up, uh, the blueprint for this. So, you know, last time, uh, when we talked about the last American Utopia, you know, mainly we went over, uh, how Alan Dulles was, you know, after World War II, he wasn't quite in the CIA yet, but he was kind of, moving some pieces behind the scenes, including uh, getting involved in uh, the Italian elections of 1948. And we also talked um, about certain things like Operation Splinter Factor, um, which was uh, when the uh, the United States goaded Joseph Stalin in, into uh, basically just, like, mutilating this, uh, this family um, because he knew that they had connections to Alan Dulles, and he sent them basically east. These were friends of his, too, and he sent them behind the Iron Curtain just to, you know, get basically gulagged. <laughs> and uh, just to fuck with him, uh, him being Stalin. And, uh, yeah, and then we talked about how Dulles and, you know, some other of the spooks in the nascent security state uh, stole an election in Italy. And that was really kind of like the precursor to what would come out just a few years later. Um... But yeah, so, you know, going to 1952 here, uh, now this is the ascension of the Eisenhower-Nixon administration. Um, at this point, the Dulles brothers had finally succeeded at staking their claim in the federal government fully as they now controlled the CIA and the State Department. They mm-hmm. had been jockeying behind the scenes for these positions, but Truman, you know, he didn't trust the Dulles brothers, you know, for all of his faults. That was one, a one rare moment when he was actually smart. <laughs> um... But so at this point, uh, this administration was now the current embodiment of the power elite, as C. Wright Mills would put it in his 1956 work, dubbed the power elite. <laughs> Appropriate, appropriately <laughs> named. Yes, yes, the duly named, yes. Uh, so this administration was the culmination of the work that had been done for decades by the corporate powers in Washington. Think back to part one when I discuss Smedley Darlington Butler and how he states he had been a henchman for capitalism, dating way back to before World War I with America's wars that were fought solely for capital. This was now the administration of the permanent war economy. The major corporations, the state, and the military establishment were put into one single structure. And I would like to say this has been a project that long predates the Dulles Brothers or the Cold War or even American hegemony. Think back to Cam's episodes on the opium wars in China. This is when the corporate interests of EG, the British East India Company, were used as the basis to wield the power of the state to engage in warfare against another country solely to get that country addicted to the products being sold by the British corporations. This is an early example or an early hint at what would become the basis of the deep state as it is now understood. Hmm. It's this synthesis of, you know, uh, of money, corporations, and state power. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you can distill state power into like raw military might yeah you know what i mean like yeah there's there's an element of diplomacy there but yeah you know it's, i mean it says as, <clears throat> as uh, smedley butler says the henchman of capital right yeah smedley we love smedley this is such a pro smedley podcast yeah 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 dude we love we love smedley don't we folks don't we folks don't <laughs> yeah. we just love smedley butler oh <laughs> he was so yeah. aware <laughs> so early yeah so um For the power elite now in charge in Washington, democracy was something to be avoided. 
They knew what was best. As John Foster once put it, the fact of the matter is that most of these politicians are highly insular and nationalistic, so business people have had to find ways for getting through and around stupid political barriers. Mm. So Eisenhower's administration would be filled with the power elite. These are Wall Street bankers, captains of industry, etc., and they all held key positions throughout. So once in office, the Dulles brothers would immediately begin to ramp up tensions in Europe, <coughs> including using psychological warfare. We should be dynamic. We should use ideas as weapons, Foster would say. That's, yeah, love that. That's, yeah. <laughs> Great, yeah. They're just, oh, they're just doing everything right so far. Yeah, they're just the best people you've ever, <laughs> ever heard about. Uh, so one of the more horrifying aspects to uh, to this was just how nuclear frenzied the power elite were. It was Foster who coined the term, which I'm sure mo most of you have heard, massive retaliation, mm -hmm. in describing the option of first-strike nuclear war against the Soviet Union. Any Soviet aggression anywhere on Earth should result in a nuclear strike. The argument was even made that a first strike would be cost-effective and let the U.S. <laughs> off the hook for its now sprawling military presence that was bankrupting the nation. You could control the world on a budget with this one simple trick. <laughs> I, uh, I fucking, I cannot... Military strategists hate him. Yeah, right? So I cannot fucking, uh, like, in reading all of this shit, I cannot stress enough how fucking rock hard some of these dudes were to just annihilate, like, a third of the life on Earth. Yeah. Like, they were so down to just make the Soviet Union, mm -hmm, China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, all of these places completely uninhabitable. Yeah. Just they like a smoldering, fucking, molten fucking pit. Yeah. They ha they had to be like almost like restrained, like like wild dogs from hitting these buttons. Like yeah. it's fucking insane. There's even one story of Nixon apparently getting wasted one night and ordering a nuclear strike on Vietnam, and then like passing out and like the orders being delayed. They're like, if he makes the order in the morning, we'll do it. But he's drunk. And then when he woke up the next day, he was like, wait, I said that shit. <laughs> That's I, I've never heard of that, and so we yeah. can't. That's just Evan talking right now. We don't know. Oh yeah, but I want to. No, I want to. I mean, I want to know about that. That sounds really yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, just wasted ordering a nuclear All strike. Right, I'm gonna have to look into that. Yeah. Um, I think if you're oh, president, you shouldn't be allowed to drink. Like you shouldn't be allowed to do drugs. <laughs> or if you well, if you do drink, it should just be officially clocked out. I guess that's fair. Yeah. yeah, you should have like a like a presidential bib or something yeah. that like uh, emits a sort of signal that like blocks all access yeah. to everything. I don't know. Yeah, you know, some um, kind of a some kind of a, a lanyard or something yeah. that you, that you hook yeah. onto yourself when you've when you've imbibed. Yeah, two beers. But, uh, I mean, two beers is fine. Yeah. If you have two beers and you want to declare nuclear war, <laughs> that's fine. But more um, than two beers. You gotta put on the lanyard. Yeah. So, um, Eisenhower would claim that Foster had a heart of gold when you know him. After this. After the massive retaliation speech. <laughs> Fucking heart of gold, dude. Sounds like a good guy. So, Eisenhower, uh, who is completely beholden to the power elite in Wall Street and Washington, would do their bidding in stacking his administration. Dick Nixon was his VP, a power elite product, as we discussed in mm -hmm. part three. The Dulles brothers were tapped to head the State Department and the CIA, even against objections by others in the CIA, due to how prone to covert amorality Allen was. <laughs> oh, what would come of this was something completely different than the democracy. It was a sprawling empire. As journalist David Halberstam put it, a true democracy had no need for a vast sec uh, secret security apparatus. 
but an imperial country did. What was evolving was a closed state within an open state. I just love the term covert amorality. Yeah. That's, I know. That is such a nasty, insidious, <coughs> you know. Describes Alan Dulles perfectly. Yeah, I'm secretly fucked. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That's just a nice way of saying that. Like, I yeah. seem really nice when you meet me. Like, I shake hands and I'm, like, good at a dinner party. I can make good jokes at Thanksgiving and stuff. I'm secretly a pervert. Yeah, I am a quirked up white boy, though. <laughs> Busting it down sexual style. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, <coughs> was he goaded so, with the sauce? So I imagine everybody listening to this knows who Joseph McCarthy is and what his story was. I would imagine that a lot of people don't. We had hits in the Philippines today. Oh, yeah, true. You well, know what I mean? mean? Like that's Yeah, I guess not everybody. Most people. Yeah. Um, most of our American listen- listeners have probably yeah. heard of Joseph McCarthy. But even if you have, like, listen, you probably don't know. Yeah. Evan's going to tell you. He's going yeah. gonna, gonna to break it down for you. Yeah. So he was an anti-communist crusader operating in the Senate but a brash outsider that was never in the circle of the power elite. The star burned brightly, but lasted for really only about four years, 1950 to 1954. McCarthy was one of the most, I wouldn't really say powerful, but he was one of the most listened to men in the government until he fixed his gaze on the power elite. Dude, when uh, he went after Hollywood, it's like, listen, yeah. pal, you're about Also, to- he was like, he was such a drunk that he was dead in his late 40s from alcoholism. Jesus. Lemmy from Motorhead lived yeah. until his mid seventies, doing meth every day. Yeah, and drinking a and, bottle and, of Jack. and drinking a seven fifty of Jack. Yeah. Um. So, uh, when the Eisenhower presidency began, there were at least ten separate probes by McCarthy and his uh, Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, which is quite the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first, this was useful to the Dulles brothers, hoping to purge all New Deal em- elements from the government once and for all. Eisenhower fucking hated McCarthy and his antics and his personality, and he wasn't really a fan of any part of him, uh, and he became infuriated as McCarthy held up his appointments in his card-carrying communist charade. So the administration decided to use Nixon, also an outsider, to try and quell McCarthy and his attacking of their Republican allies. Both Nixon and McCarthy were outsiders that would never be fully accepted by the elite, but Nixon was... And two-time presidential loser, Adlai Stevenson's words, McCarthy with a white collar. He knew how to please his benefactors in order to move in their circles. (laughs) So Nixon was able to placate the thrashing McCarthy for some time by dangling political favors, but it was temporary and eventually all control was lost. McCarthy began to accuse people of not just being communists, but gay as well. And his chief gay witch finder general was Roy Cohn, <laughs> himself a homosexual whose boy toy David Shine was on his staff. 
And yes, that is the Roy Cohn who mentored and represented Donald J. Trump early in Trump's career. Oh, that rules. Yeah. I knew I knew that name. I was like, how, yeah. how do yeah. I know so this guy? Cohn in particular loved to humiliate homosexual witnesses before the hearings, demanding to know the locations of their encounters and the names of their sexual partners. Yeah, he was into it. Oh my god, that's disgusting. Who and where did they do this? So I know to avoid them. There's so many places. I need to know which ones to avoid. Yeah, right. <laughs> Wouldn't want to accidentally stumble through yeah. that park and find a particular yeah. restroom. Which park or is this? At what time of night? Or... Just so I know to not walk there. What were their phone numbers, sir? This is for official Senate business. Yeah. Uh, so one mainstay throughout all of this was John Foster Dulles. Having no idea how to rein in the drunken ramblings of Senator McCarthy and his pack of dogs bang this way and that about communists and homosexuals taking over the government. He cowered in the corner, scared to stand up to McCarthy, and so it was up to his younger brother, Alan Dulles, uh, to take him down now that McCarthy was threatening the apparatus they were building. McCarthy decided to attack the CIA, saying he was infiltrated by communists, and his prime target was William Bundy, a Yale skull and bones bred spook who got into intelligence after he got sick of jacking off into Geronimo's skull or doing whatever else it is that secret of Yale society does. Is it Geronimo's skull they claim to have? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> the, the sorest winners in history, dude. <laughs> like... was, du- was W a skull and bones? Yeah, and was, HW, yeah. right? They were both. Yeah, yeah, all of the Bushes are, yeah. Oh, um, so William Bundy was the older brother of the guy I mentioned last week, George, George Bundy. I'm at William and then Mick George. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's my personal That's like favorite. I, uh, <laughs> did I ever tell you the story? Not to take a sidetrack, but just no, no, to go, like go uh, add a little flavor to how shitty it is to have a second kid with a way worse name. <coughs> um, I work with a guy who was telling me a story about going to his... Uh, Oh, yeah, I know this one. You know the story? Yeah, tell, tell it for the Should story. I tell it? Yeah, yeah. That's not, like, too incriminating, right? We can we can tell the story. No. So, it's the not, breakfast food name kid, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. If they ever hear this, they might know, but it's also, like, you deserve to feel ashamed. Yeah. So, um, buddy of mine was dropping his niece off at school, and when he gets there, she's like, you know, uncle, can you come in with me? And I, I, we learned how to write our names. This is, like, preschool. <laughs> And she's like, we learned how to write our names. I want to show you my name. And so he says to the teacher, like, is that cool? You mind if I come in? And she was like, yeah, of course. Yeah. So he goes in and he's looking at all, you know, the wall where all the kids' names that they've learned how to write are hung up. And he sees her name and he sees a bunch of other names. Yep. And then he catches one and he's like, what? he goes to the teacher. He's like, what? I noticed that one of the names is Pancakes. <laughs> and so she says, yeah, that's one of our students. And he's like, is that like a nickname? And she's like, listen, like, it's not really funny. So anyway, it's nice to see you. So he leaves. But as soon as he leaves, he's like, I got to get my sister-in-law on the phone right now. So he calls his sister-in-law and he's like, okay, I just dropped my niece off at daycare. And um, what's up with this kid named Pancakes? The teacher didn't seem really uh, impressed with me. And she goes, yeah, um... You know, it's not a joke. There's a little girl in the class whose given name is Pancakes. Like a poor kid. And so she's like, yeah, so um, growing up, uh, she has an older brother, and her parents used to call the older brother Pancakes as a nickname because he loved Pancakes and just sort of became his nickname. And That's such a fucking crazy reason to name (laughs) this second kid. And so when they had their second kid, they thought it would be cute to name her Pancakes. 
And he was like, you know what the older brother's name is? It's John. <laughs> and I just find that so fucking funny. These, these fucking assholes. They I know. A kid named it's John. not even a good reason to name your kid something like that. They're just like, that. no, honestly, like, fuck Oh, well, this. their sibling likes pancakes, so we named this fucking yeah. asshole pancakes. Fuck the second one. We want that one to get bullied, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like deciding that one of your kids is going to have a worse life than the other. Yeah. Can you imagine just like at birth being like, "Yeah, you're gonna. I don't want you to have any legs up. We, we yeah. want that first one to really thrive." So yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, that's the story. That's the whole story. <coughs> Sorry to derail yeah. you. I just thought that was important. No, no, that that was good. That's a very good aside for <laughs> William and McGeorge. <laughs> um. Uh. So uh, you know, McGeorge will become a uh, a player uh when the when the story focuses to JFK down the line. But um, is that in now, this episode? Or are you talking about like part seven and eight? Well, uh, it won't be American Utopia once I get the JFK book. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, but so uh, the Bundys uh, were Alan Dulce's men through and through, which is something that you should remember um, about McGeorge. And uh, McCarthy hoped to make William Bundy his Alger Hiss. Recall that Hiss was the man that Nixon smeared into obscurity in part three during the Pumpkin Papers That's right. episode. The Pumpkin Papers. Yeah. <laughs> God. Um, so here is where we also start to see another aspect of this deep state power leap. The power struggle in the competing factions. Sorry. <laughs> the pumpkin papers. The squash dossier. <laughs> Sorry, Stop. I don't know why I thought that sounded so funny. No, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, Alright, so, uh, the power struggle in the competing factions. So J. Edgar Hoover was to the FBI as Alan Dulles was to the CIA, and the two fucking hated each other and each other's agencies, always accusing the other of stepping on their toes. I've been waiting to see, like, this is almost like um, Godzilla versus King Kong. I've been, like, yeah. wondering if we were ever going to find out, like, what J. Edgar and Alan Dulles thought of each other. They probably wanted yeah. to fuck Wicked Bad. Okay, well, okay, so... Okay. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> That's gonna already... Go. You know, already... <laughs> I am about to get pretty salacious uh, okay. about J. Edgar Hoover, so okay. uh, I'll probably do, like, in the future more of, like, Hoover versus Dulles. But, yeah, dude, they, they fucking, they were rock hard. There was tension. Other. There was some yeah. tension oh, in yeah, the room. They, yeah, they were, they were ready to fucking suck There was, like, each some, other, like, some episode three of Euphoria, like, yeah. do you watch uh, Euphoria? Um, no, I've never seen it. Ah, uh, fair enough. Anyway, um, so, Hoover kept a massive collection of information on Allen, and he, i.e. Hoover, was constantly feeding information to McCarthy. CIA agents were even convinced the FBI had bugged their phones, including Robert Amory, the top intelligence analyst at the agency. <laughs> so the CIA, though, kept just as much of a file on Hoover in the FBI. James Angleton, that's Jimmy Jesus, James Jesus Angleton, oh, that's right. uh, counterintelligence spymaster, would say penetration begins at home, and with Hoover, that was more than just spy penetration. Oh, and he would claim any intelligence agency that did not keep a close eye on its own government wasn't worth its weight in salt. Among the compromising info on Hoover was the fact that he was a homosexual, which was something of an open secret, but that Angleton actually had physical evidence in the form of a picture so showing Hoover performing fellatio on his FBI deputy Clyde Tolson, just taking it right to the hill. Is that when he was in like a big dog costume, or was that? <laughs> Is that a The Shining joke? Yeah. No. Oh. No, that's just what I. It's just me, just yeah. thinking that's of fun ways like. to suck a guy's dick. No, yeah, yeah. it was The Shining. It was Shining. <coughs> so, 
This piece of evidence was always kept dangling to limit the damage Hoover could do to the CIA. So, so, so they would let him get a little uppity, but anytime he started to do some real damage, they would just kind of show him the picture. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd be like, oh, So what you're saying is that the CIA was better than the FBI at this point. Oh, I mean, they were definitely stronger. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Okay. Uh, so I guess better Dulles is a weird word to use, but... Yeah, yeah, they were both dog shit. Yeah. But, uh, so Dulles himself kept a massive file of McCarthy's sex life, and rumors swirled that he notoriously haunted gay hideaways in Washington and Milwaukee. McCarthy's midlife marriage was often thought of as a beard. There were also plenty of rumors about McCarthy liking underage girls. The entire battle between McCarthy and the CIA had an, undercover, uh, an undercurrent of salacious sexual sordidity. Man, that is exactly the type of alliteration that we've been working so hard to achieve on this podcast. Yeah. I like it. Wrap it up. Let's end it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Neat little bow on top. Yeah. So once Dulles began battling McCarthy, he would just completely stonewall him when McCarthy would subpoena a CIA man. This being something of a constitutional crisis. Well, something of one. McCarthy demanded on the Senate floor that Dulles himself appear before the subcommittee owing to this blatant violation of the law. And Dulles simply said the CIA could not be investigated because of the sensitive nature of its work. Yeah, this, that rules. I love that yeah. so much. Yeah. Sorry, but what we do is just, like, too important and secret. Like, you can't... Yeah. I'm sorry. But... Fuck off, loser. Yeah, dude. Like, um, we're just doing top secret shit. Like, no girls yeah. allowed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Gross. Get rid of smelly <laughs> girls. <laughs> um... So Eisenhower and Nixon worked to smooth over this loss for McCarthy, who would claim that he and Dulles had come to an accord. And then Dulles made sure his friends in the press corps twisted the knife and made a huge stink about McCarthy's (laughs) humiliating loss. Dulles would fucking collect newspaper clippings of his victory like a serial killer. Oh my god. Yeah. (coughs) Dulles was like jerking off to the thought of letting his baby sister drown. (laughs) Oh god, yeah. (laughs) Good callback. Listen to part one. (laughs) Yeah, so I think that was part two. Damn, we didn't get to that until part two? Yeah. So for his part, Dulles became a champion of both conservatives and liberals in the agency. Liberals especially because they were so often under attack by the red baiters in McCarthy's camp. And McCarthy would never recover from this. After losing to the CIA, he tried to take on the agriculture department, and, and then the army failing at both with the latter being his end. The showdown with the army was televised while McCarthy was fuming and storming left and right under the lights, sweating like a whore in church because he was probably fucking wasted or, you know, trying to work one off. Um, uh, Boston attorney Joseph Nye Welch uttered his uh, fatality to McCarthy. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you no sense of decency? Uh, you know, in, in the 1950s, this was the most brutal takedown you could yeah. you could say to a person. Like, this is just fucking uh, absolutely washed. I feel like that's like, that's paraphrased. I bet in person he was like, dude, what the fuck? You fucking gay and drunk, dude? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you fucking gay and drunk, guy? Listen, dude. You're going to stand here in front of me, fucking Boston attorney, Joseph <laughs> Nye Welch? Yeah. You mean to tell what are you fucking gay and drunk? Joseph fucking Nye Welch guy. Listen, man, I'm just saying, there's fucking photos. I've seen them. You're fucking gay and you're fucking drunk, dude. (laughs) (laughs) You made me spill my fucking Duncans, dude. (laughs) You're fucking gay. Bro, I'm sorry. You're fucking gay, you're fucking drunk. (laughs) Yeah. Two two things, Leahy. Put on some fucking pants and fuck off. Dude, um, so- one of the funniest bits from late Trailer Park Boys, which is yeah. not good Trailer Park Boys, but when he gets yeah. the breathalyzer 
And yeah. <laughs> he's like, I just know exactly when I need a little top off. Okay? <laughs> I'm not the liquor anymore. I'm on top of the liquor. <laughs> Look at that. 1.8. Time for a little drinky poo. <laughs> or 0.18, rather. Yeah. Um, all right. So McCarthy was destroyed in the eyes of the public. The Senate voted to censure McCarthy in 1954. By 1956, he was drinking a bottle of hard liquor every day and was called a, quote, sick pigeon by those close to him. He was seized by delirium tremens while visiting home in September 1956 and thought fucking snakes were flying at him. He was dead by May of the following year due to liver failure at the age of 48. And for the remainder of the Eisenhower era, no one could touch Alan Dulles. Damn. Yep. He met an unsavory end. Yeah, fucking snakes flying at him. Uh, yeah, this sounds pretty bad. I mean, I see that. You don't see that. <coughs> well, yeah. If I haven't had my my medicine, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> So let's uh, let's go to Iran in 1953. So as we discussed in episode three, the Italian elections in you said Iran, and now we're going to Italy. Well, yeah, we yeah we'll, we'll take a detour to scenic Italy. Um, Unbelievable. So the Italian elections in 1948 were the first real attempt by the fledgling intelligence apparatus in America to install a pro-American government in another country. While this was not a coup in the way that the CIA would become so famous for. In just a few years, the communists were on the verge of total control of the government before the United States began funneling huge amounts of money and propaganda into the country in support of the Christian Democrats. Now here in the 50s with Alan Dulles' ascendant, real regime change would become a staple of American foreign diplomacy. It would be to the Hotel Excelsior in Rome that the young leaders of Iran, 33-year-old Mohammad Reza Pahlavi and his 21-year-old wife Queen Soraya, would flee in the night with just a small retainer and a few possessions. The Hotel Excelsior was an opulent hotel for the rich and powerful, including Hollywood insiders like Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Audrey Hepburn, and Gregory Peck. John Wayne once claimed that he had a one-night stand with Marlene Dietrich on the staircase itself. <laughs> okay there, pilgrim. <laughs> yeah. Let's hike those britches down. I don't fucking know. I'm trying to think of like f- what it would be like to fuck John, uh, John Wayne. I almost just like, said John Wayne Gacy. Like, oh uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to think about what it would be like to just hook up with John Wayne Gacy, dude. You know what I mean? Yeah. Clown makeup? No clown makeup? Does he hit me with yeah. a hammer? Does he not? I don't fucking know. Yeah. So the hotel was famous for its association with the spook community being a favorite rendezvous for espionage agents. Licio Gelli, the leader of Propaganda Due, or P2, a Masonic lodge that would pull the strings in Italy for years behind the scenes, kept a sequence of joining rooms at the hotel. The CIA connected men engaging in covert anti-communist business in the hotel would enter room 127, do business in 128, and leave from 129. 
Alan Dulles himself favored the Excelsior, and while on vacation with his life with his wife Clover in Switzerland, he suddenly told her they needed to go to Rome, and they got to the front desk at the same time as the young Iranian couple. Frank Wisner, who I've mentioned as one of these early famous CIA spooks before, and who would play a prominent role throughout the 50s as Deputy Director of Plans, DDP, Diamond Dial's page, mm-hmm. um, would claim that Dulles <laughs> said... <laughs> I let, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would claim that uh, Dulles said to Pallavi, after you, your majesty, while claiming it was all a coincidence. Right. Of course... Dulles' arrival was. I just I say that to every tan person I see. That's, yeah. just, that's just how I am. Yeah, <laughs> I doubt he would use that word tan. <laughs> right, but yeah, you know. yeah. So I'm no Joe Rogan, right? I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna yeah. get myself in trouble. Got him, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude, <Of> right? <laughs> we call that punching up. Okay, that is yeah. true comedy. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, Dulles' arrival was not a coincidence. Mohammad Mossadegh. Uh, Prime Minister of Iran had just royally pissed off the British by nationalizing the oil fields of the Anglo-Iranian oil company after taking office. MI6 was raging back at Iran because all any intelligence agency in the West is really for is protecting capital, and so Mossadegh shut down the British embassy in Tehran. Well, the Brits then turned to Washington for help, because, you know, the Brits by this point were useless without America. Um... And by the following uh, morning of the Dulles Mossadegh meeting, the CIA would be funding and leading the mobs running through the streets of Tehran. Literally, stories of some of these people having cash directly handed to them from CIA agents still in their pockets. That's awesome. Both Dulles brothers had extensive ties to the oil industry through their law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell. Which we've all so, heard of, right? That's still a yeah. company. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, no, they're still a thing. Um,. So they were more than happy to help out the Shah with his prime minister problem. The Shah himself had brokered a lucrative deal for Dulles and his clients in the 40s to modernize his country's infrastructure. And so Dulles was even more willing to repay Pahlavi. However, Mossadegh would come into power on the back of anti-imperialist fervor, and Iran's parliament voted not to sell the country to American capital. And this pissed Dulles off and made him hostile to Mossadegh. Eisenhower... For his part, and Foster's predecessor, Dean Acheson, liked Mossadegh, and Eisenhower initially rebuffed the Dulles brothers' desire to topple his government, hoping to bail them out instead. The Dulles brothers took the stance that Mossadegh should help British oil initially, but Eisenhower scoffed at it and Mossadegh just offered compensation to the company. Mossadegh's position, by the way, was supported nearly unanimously by Iranian parliament and the people. So, in all sense, it was a democratic decision by the country. But again, the power elite doesn't like democracy, and so the Dulleses decided to reframe it as a Cold War battleground. Allen painted Mossadegh as a Moscow stooge who, if allowed to remain in power, would give 60% of the oil on Earth to the bloody communists. Of course, yeah, can't Of course, he, uh, Mossadegh was an Iranian nationalist, waging war against imperialism in the Third World. But lying has always served empire and capital well, so why not turn to it here? As the coup was being planned, the Shah issued a royal decree dismissing Mossadegh at the behest of Washington, and in his place he named Fazlola Zahedi, a general that was imprisoned during World War II for Nazi collaboration. Eh, They're always able to, like, dude, they can call on these Nazis like they got them in Pokeballs or something. Like, just fucking constantly. Yeah, it's rumors. Now this, uh, now, this was illegal, as only Parliament could remove Mossadegh, and so the Prime Minister declared that he was compelled to take full power due to an intended coup. 
So it was at this point that the Shah fled to Rome. After the mass demonstrations began in the streets of Tehran, the CIA planted, planted agents as supporters of Tudeh, the Iranian Communist Party. It should be noted again that Mossadegh was not a communist under any stretch. He was a liberal Iranian nationalist. But Washington was desperate to make the demonstrations appear to be influenced by Moscow. Some fucking things never change. There it is. So, these CIA provocateurs, under the guise of two-day supporters, began attacking mosques and priests in order to discredit the group. This would become a tactic especially deployed in far deadlier terms during the Italian years of lead, where CIA finance provocateurs pretended to be left-wing groups and commit terrorism in Italy. And that's going to bring back that group I mentioned before, Propaganda Due. So the Dulleses tapped Kermit Roosevelt Jr., hmm. Teddy's grandson, to lead the coup, and he drew up the plan. I just love that his name is fucking Kermit. Yeah, I, I've always wondered, is Kermit a nickname? Or is Kermit just a Kermit, name? No, Kermit is his real name. He went by Kim, but his real name was his Kermit. His given name was Kermit. Yeah. And I guess that that name just died out because of Kermit the Frog. Like, it's just yeah. too... It's like you can't name your kid Elmo either. Yeah. Or Big Bird. Yeah, yeah, big birds out of uh, out of uh, yeah. out of circulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had to, yeah, they had to pull that one. This back is my in the kids, 90s. big bird and snuffleupagus. <laughs> um, what? No, I've never seen yeah. the I've never seen the Muppets. What is that? What is that? <coughs> Sesame Street. Anyway, yes, who fucking yeah. cares? On with the show. Yeah. Um. So, this coup led by Kermit Roosevelt uh, was brutal and efficient, and Foster had claimed. So this is how we get rid of that madman Mossadegh when he saw the plan fucking mad who's the madman here you fuck like god um but Jesus it would be the dulleses and roosevelt who showed no humanity anyone loyal to mosadeg and the government was kidnapped and murdered the corpse of a general loyal to mosadeg was mangled and dumped on the roadside outside tehran as a message how dared you prevent american and british capital from raping your country either bend over or we'll kill you <laughs> so <laughs> so on I, august I, you know, I've, I've said that myself and Yep. I think most of us have had those moments. Whomst amongst us. Whomst amongst us. Yeah. Hasn't had a moment. Well, maybe, you know, had a couple drinks. Uh, a couple you want things. what you want, you threaten murder. It's not, you know, it's not the end of the yeah. world. Okay. Everybody knows you're not serious. But if you don't do it, I'm fucking serious. Captain of the swim team? Not a problem. Sweep it under the rug. <laughs> um, He's just a kid. I mean, come on. <laughs> <coughs> so, on August 18th, Mossadegh supporters roamed the streets and took control of Tehran and expelled the Shah. However, Mossadegh bent to pressure from the West that you never fucking trust them. That's the thing, you never. You should. Always stand your ground. Yep. Uh, so he had his people removed from the streets in order restored under protest from the West. This was his mistake. By the following day, the CIA-backed mobs packed the streets and Mossadegh retreated to his house, which was quickly surrounded by the coup. U.S. built artillery was outside his home, and after a couple hours of fighting, the American back coup won out. One of Mossadegh's officers was literally torn limb from limb by the mob, and democracy in Iran was officially over. So, remember this whenever anyone tells you that the U.S. gets involved on the side of democracy, or that is ever its goal. It's not. It invades and topples regimes in order to install whomever will let American business ransack the natural resources of the mm -hmm. country. Yeah, and we, Iran we almost exclusively support authoritarian regimes. Not, not almost. Absolutely exclusively. There's not a single example of us supporting... Yeah, I guess fair enough. But, yeah. uh, <clears throat> I mean, like, the Korean War is a good example. Uh, uh, Iran-Contra, uh, yeah. this is part of that. Like, yeah, no, we, we pretty much exclusively fucking support yeah. dictators. 
Yeah, whoever will uh, allow U.S. business to come in and privatize and just strip mine everything in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exclusively. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Uh, to this day, Iran is still a thorn in the side of the U.S. and all because they want to protect British oil profits. Yeah. And that's also a theme in this. The next one I'm going to talk about, Guatemala, same thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we're still... Like, the world that we live in today was built by these movements, like, by these events. Right. And that was why it was so hysterical when the U.S. decided to turn on and, and go after Saddam Hussein because he We had funded was, him for years. Exactly. Right. Like, we, like, propped him up and put him in specifically because this happened. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Not because this happened, because the Islamic Revolution happened in, in Iran. Yeah. And we were like, well, we need somebody over there. And so, yeah, yeah. we just, like, found, funded the Bath Party. The Bath yeah. Party. <laughs> but, um, so... The shot for his part was, according to Roosevelt, a wimp who is scared to remain or re-enter his country with the chaos unfolding. Uh, so he went on a shopping spree down Via Condotti and dropped in and out of the Gucci, Dior, and Hermes showcases while Tehran burned. Uh, Dulles would then work overtime to stiffen up Shapalavi and get him back to Tehran to take power, although Soraya would remain behind for a bit. She would turn out to be infertile, however, and just a few years later would be divorced by a weeping Pahlavi as she settled back into life in Italy and even had a brief film career. Hmm. The CIA would generously spread money around in Tehran to make sure the Shah was greeted warmly on his return. Among those in the American power elite that aided and benefited from the coup was the Rockefeller family. Uh, they're always in the middle of all this shit. Mm -hmm. uh, who controlled Standard Oil, now Exxon, and Chase Manhattan. Standard Oil wound up being a member of the consortium that would take control of the Iranian oil after the coup. In return, the Shah would deposit huge amounts of his personal fortune in Chase Manhattan, and the Rockefellers would get contracts for housing developments in Iran. Yep. <clears throat> All seems good and proper to me. Yep. That's just doing business. We're on the side of democracy. We spread democracy. <laughs> so after Iran, Dulles was positively giddy with what he had accomplished and was supposedly over the moon with the thought of engineering a coup himself and when Jupp had the chance to do so. <coughs> so in something that still persists to this day, the U.S. media was entirely compliant to the CIA and its director, scarcely mentioning Dulles's appearance in Rome and never being willing to draw the connection between the CIA and the coup. Dulles had friends in the press, and he leaned on them to overlook the CIA's role and to share in its enthusiasm. The press refused to use the word coup and instead called it a popular uprising. Mm -hmm. Let's get some spook alarms going for uh, current events. Wee wee. Yep, like Navi in uh, Ocarina of Time. Hey, hey listen. Listen. <laughs> uh, the overturning of democracy was called a, quote, cause to rejoice. Dope. Love that. 
So once Mossadegh was out of the picture and the Shah reinstalled, the oil fields in Iran were once again divided by uh, up by Western oil companies. Roosevelt himself would leave, and I say leave in quotes here because much like the mafia, you never actually quit the agency. Mm -hmm. uh, but he would leave the CIA in 1958 to join the management of Gulf Oil, where he would take charge of cooperation with foreign governments, including Iran. Wow. Yeah. Gee, I wonder if he was still working for the CIA at this point. I wouldn't say so. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not. No, no, no. So, for their part, the Oval Office, the CIA, and the State Department were in rapturous celebration after the coup. And an internal CIA memo said it was a day that should never have ended. <coughs> While giving his presentation on the success of the White House... Fucking Roosevelt would look at Foster leaning back in his chairs and note in his chair and notice his eyes were gleaming and he seemed to be purring like a giant cat. I don't care for that. Yeah, it's terrible. That's a terrible. That's a weird uh, image that I don't image. like. Yeah, the Shah would unleash hell on his opposition in the state with his secret police, the Second Bureau, and later the infamous Savick to root out subversion. With direct assistance from the CIA, thousands were rounded up, tortured, and executed including by primitive methods of beatings, whipping, smashing of furniture on heads, uh, breaking of fingers, and even the kabani, or being hung from hooks, Ugh. like, while alive, yeah. The two-day party, Iran's communists, obviously did not fare well. Mossadegh was put on a show trial for treason, although he defended himself by saying his only crime was defying imperialism. He was sentenced to solitary confinement and then banished to his rural village under guard until his death a decade later. And Pahlavi would rule until uh, would rule Iran until the infamous revolt in 1979, led by Islamists. The insane jubilee at the massacre in Iran is completely emblematic of this power elite stance now globally. The Eisenhower administration would repeatedly threaten to use massive retaliation of nuclear weapons at any given chance. Eisenhower, over his terms in office, would end up having myriad health problems, including a heart attack and a stroke that would often leave Foster and Nixon in charge. Two men that were not known for backing down from using any means to defeat communism. Eisenhower nearly launched nukes at the end of the Korean War, a horrific war that saw massive usage of biological and chemical we weapons by the U.S. and that saw millions of Koreans massacred by the American-led troops and that I think should be thought of as a genocide by America. Mm. I mean, seriously, like, what was it, like, fuck it, like, 10, 20 million Koreans, something like that, died over the course of the war? It's a lot. <laughs> yep. I mean, they, like, completely, like, carpet bombed and just destroyed entire cities. Yep. <clears throat> like Pyongyang. Pyongyang, um, Incheon. Yeah. Yeah. Just, like, leveled, completely leveled and had to be rebuilt. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and then, you know, the, the dictator, the Americans propped up in South Korea, just, like, disappeared and killed tens of thousands. Um, but anyway... Uh, nukes were nearly used in Vietnam at Dien Bien Phu in 1954 to aid the French, and were nearly used against China over the islands of Quamoy and Matsu in 1954, and nearly against the Soviet Union over Berlin in 1958. Foster continually tried to force the issue. The Chinese strikes would have killed tens of millions, which Foster was apparently slightly taken aback by, but, you know, just was still willing to do. He's like, damn, that's sure. more than I thought. Let's fucking do it. Right. <laughs> Well, that's like, pretty fucking devastating, huh? All right, well, uh, you know. Fuck it. Let's roll. It's in motion. Let's roll so on much. Shabbos, dude. Um, <laughs> uh, the French were apparently, like, shocked at the suggestion to use nukes in Vietnam, and they, like, quickly rebuffed, and were just like, what the fuck? Sacre Are they bleu. They're like, if we nuke them, then it, that doesn't help us, because it just destroys the right. the territory we're trying we to hold anything. on to. We don't have anything. We can't. Yeah. 
turn them into You're just glass. nuking them for the sake of nuking them. Like, fucking psychos. So C. Wright Mills would claim that, just like the Nazis before them, the national security leaders had institutionalized and bureaucratized violence and were completely dehumanized from the shock of it. <coughs> so after the death of Stalin and the ascendance of Nikita Khrushchev, the latter would remark on a summit in 1955 when he met Eisenhower that John Foster Dulles was actually the man in control of Washington, as he would continually slide notes under Ike's hand, and Ike would read it before making any decision. Khrushchev found it difficult to imagine how a head of state could allow himself to lose face like that in front of delegates from another country. He said Ike was like a dutiful schoolboy allowing Dulles to do the thinking for him. Oh, jeez. And as David Talbot puts it in The Devil's Chessboard, the Eisenhower-Dulles administrations operate on twin levels of psychic violence and actual violence. Foster continually threatened nuclear war on enemies, and Dulles just went around assassinating and cooing any individual or government he thought would lead to the benefit of capital. Of course... During the 1970s, commissions investigating the illegal activities of the fledgling agency, including their assassinations of one U.S. president and one hopeful president, the CIA would paint itself as inept and incapable of actually performing its own tasks, saying that while they had hoped to assassinate people like Castro or Trujillo or Lumumba, they never actually succeeded because they were inept or beaten to the punch. A blatant lie, and also one still repeated in limited hangouts today. Hmm. Uh, so for the Lumumba one, Patrice Lumumba, there were multiple ongoing assassination plots one of which had Sidney Gottlieb going to poison Lumumba and when he arrived in West Africa Lumumba was assassinated in a different CIA plot and he was like well what the fuck hmm. um, I spent all this time planning this assassination and now I just have to take LSD got, on my and, own and now, I just, ugh, fine. now I have to trip by myself here I'll just do this LSD <laughs> yeah. nobody gives me any respect Let's go to Guatemala in 1954. Sure, yeah. So on the night of September 9th, 1954, Jacobo Arbenz fled Guatemala City after being ousted in a military coup. Arbenz was a social democrat who had won election to the top position in Guatemala with the promise of land reform and wealth redistribution. As he fled from the country through the airport in Guatemala City, he was reviled by the Guatemalan aristocracy and heckled throughout the airport where he was forced to strip down to his underwear by the new military regime. He and his family made it to the airport as a decoy car was blown up by assassins. The CIA helped organize the hostile party at the airport to make it look more like the country hated him for the American press. However, Arbenz had been well-loved by the peasants and workers of Guatemala. Mm. The Arbenz family had just spent nearly three months in the Mexican embassy in Guatemala City that was so loaded with refugees that typhus and other diseases had broken out. 
Among the CIA disinformation campaign used to oust him are Benz was smeared as a pawn of Moscow, as a butcher of political foes, rich coming from the spooks in Washington, that he had personally raided his country's treasury, and that he was sexually captivated by the male leader of the Guatemalan Communist Party. All those gay communists again. But, uh, you know, none of it was true. When the CIA stormed the presidential palace after Arbenz fled, they got all of the sensitive information about Arbenz that they could. That Arbenz's father had killed himself, that Arbenz had once sought treatment for alcoholism. The agency found this information lacking in sensations, so they added them with their own fabrications, and they made sure the world knew. Guatemala itself was bewildered by the response of the United States to its modest reforms. The country appealed to the UN, the Organization of American States, which, as I outlined in episodes 15 and 22 of this podcast about modern Peru and Bolivia, mm-hmm. is an extension of Washington. They appealed to other countries individually, the world press, and Washington itself, believing this must all be some mistake. The Soviet Union did not even have an embassy in Guatemala, but, according to the McCarthyist rhetoric of the time, the absence of a relationship is just all the more evidence that there is one, because they're fucking hiding it. Fucking idiots. Um, So the astute listener may even draw parallels of the U.S. blatantly lying about Moscow's desire for invasion or control of another country to current events. Maybe. So as Arbenz fled throughout the West seeking asylum, he was continuously tailed, treated with hostility, and had obscene demands thrown on him, like renouncing his Guatemalan citizenship. Finally, he fled behind the Iron Curtain to Czechoslovakia and then the Soviet Union. Going to the only part of the world that would peacefully accept him, as I'm sure the U.S. and its allies wanted, led, of course, to the press claiming that this was always where Arbenz wanted to go, you know, being a Bolshevik and all, even though he was only ever a social democrat. Right. And for his part, Arbenz fucking hated life in Eastern Europe, as it was cold and sunless. And so, finally, he was able to go to Uruguay, but he had to live completely anonymously until 1960 when he went to Cuba after the revolution. Even there, though, he was haunted by his failures in Guatemala as what happened there was used as a cautionary tale to the young communist Republican Havana. Arbenz's daughter would leave Cuba and move to Paris to marry a matador, but the love affair came to a tragic end in 1965 when the 25-year-old Arabea Arbenz shot herself in the mouth after an argument at a cafe in Bogota, Colombia with the matador. Six years later, Arbenz himself would suffer a strange death under suspicious circumstances after climbing into a scalding hot bathtub at the age of 57 and either burning or drowning to death. The family believed it was a CIA assassination, and I gotta say, it stinks. <laughs> so the reason for the coup in 54 is simple. Arbenz went against Washington and its business partners, especially the United Fruit Company, today known as Chiquita Banana, with the cute little logo on the banana. Yeah, 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 which is uh, Carmen Miranda, yeah. who it's based on. I think it's Carmen so, Miranda. yeah. I'm not sure. I'll take your word for it. Um, When he pushed his land reform bill through, uh, 70% of the land in Guatemala was owned by 2% of the landowners. Mm. (coughs) And this is in, like, you know, a farming country. Right. So the United Fruit Company basically ran the country like a colony under the dictatorship of Jorge Ubico, who would literally, literally, quite literally, rope together peasants to work the land under debt slavery as if they were livestock. He would, like, yoke people. Um... Urbens had been a leader in the revolution that ousted Ubico. Once he was president and instituted his land reform, just like Mossadegh in Iran, Urbens had offered to repay the United Fruit Company for seized land, and he did not even seize all of it. Anything under current cultivation was still the company's, so it was the uncultivated mm-hmm. land. 
Still, this was too much for the company, who asked for $16 million for the land seized, but was countered with 525000 by Guatemala, the exact figure the company valued the land at for tax purposes. So United Fruit was basically a state within a state in Guatemala. They owned the telephones, the only major Atlantic harbor, they monopolized the banana exports, and they owned nearly every single mile of railroad track through a subsidiary. That's awesome. And United the, and Fruit, in, baby. Yeah. And in the United States, it was part of the power elite through and through, being completely tied into the State Department, Congress, the UN, and Eisenhower personally. Oh, and guess who represented them as lawyers for Sullivan and Cromwell? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Did you guess the Dulles Brothers? Because wow. you're correct. It's a good guess. Um, I did guess yes. it. You know, yep. pat myself on the back for that. Congratulations, Cameron. Thanks, man. I, uh, I had so, a feeling. So, I just had a feeling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the administration began labeling Guatemala as a Soviet beachhead and said they were imposing a communist-type reign of terror on the people. At first, they offered our Benz $2 million to fuck off. Leahy, I'm going to give you $100 to fuck off. <laughs> uh, he said no. Then they threatened him physically, and he said no. So there was only one other step to make. The U.S. sent mercenaries into the country to haunt it and bomb the capital. The operation was initially staged in Florida and then sent through Nicaragua. They bribed army officers and spread propaganda to neighboring countries, building up support in Honduras and Nicaragua against Guatemala to scare the military into abandoning Arbenz. Arbenz was not willing to lead a guerrilla resistance, and so as the troops bore down on the capital, Arbenz gave a radio sign-off speech to the people that the U.S. jammed. Now, while there were troops in Guatemala outside the capital, the U.S. intentionally obfuscated the size by sending out transmissions in Guatemala and Guatemala City that a massive force was bearing down on the capital. This was used to scare our bands and the people, and it worked. However, it was a massive embellishment of the actual invasion force, and the same tactic would be used during the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, but Fidel Castro had learned from the mistakes of our bands. E. Howard Hunt, a name that will appear in the future during the Watergate scandal, again, spook alarms, uh, led this disinformation campaign aimed at making it look like the infrastructure of Guatemala was crumbling. So the code name uh, by Dallas for this coup was PB Success, and they celebrated once again in Washington. They would call the coup a bloodless victory, but what followed was anything but. At the time of the coup, Guatemala was a nation of 4 million. After four decades of rampant torture, violence, and death squads roaming the country, 250,000 would lie dead. The dictator who took over was Castillo Armas, just the first in a long line of blood-soaked dictatorships in the country. The United States from 1960 to 1990 would kill more people in Latin America alone than were killed in the entirety of the Soviet bloc in the same time frame, and yet it is the communist regimes that were called bloody and repressive, and that must be stopped by any means necessary. Yeah, I mean, the Cold War, Cold War is good for business. Yeah, killing always is has good been. for business. Yeah, yep. that's why they're building up another Cold War. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. <laughs> We're doing it right now. It's yep. good for business, man. Yeah. I mean, that's why when the Cold War ended, it became terrorism. Yep. And now that terrorism's kind of over, it's, you know, it's out of vogue. It's not in vogue anymore, yeah. It's a little so. garish now. And people were thinking about uh, China, but I feel like most people realize China's like a little too scary, so like... Yeah. Well, like, they, I mean, they're building up another Cold War in China and Russia. I know, that's true, but it's like... And the thing is, them building up another Cold War in Russia, that tells you all you need to know about what America actually thinks about communism. And also that they're building up well, you know, it's that it was never really about communism. It was about them not being able to work with the Soviet Union. Yep. And you notice how they were fine with China until China started reinstituting socialist programs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then all of a sudden now they were a problem. Yep. You know. Anyway. Um, 
<laughs> yeah. So uh, the plotting of the coup actually began uh, way back in January of 1952. And early on, Washington had compiled a list of the members of Arbenz's government that they wanted to assassinate, although they wanted to leave Arbenz alive for optics. There was even a 19-page uh, CIA memo detailing how best to assassinate foreign leaders. There was a brief clause in it. Murder is not morally justified. Persons who are morally squeamish should not attempt it. <laughs> it did specify that the best way to kill was to sever the spinal cord in the cervical region, and it listed many desirable weapons to use. So the government of Castillo Armas did what every Washington-backed government does after a coup. Round up and kill thousands of people with left-leaning tendencies. People that thought the workers and farmers should own the goods they produce. Terrible people. The CIA helped build a list that amounted to fucking 10% of Guatemala's adults. People that were subversive to the government. Uh, this put, like, Sulla to shame. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. the level of conscriptions is crazy. Yeah. So the fascist... I mean, yeah, it was like in Indonesia when they killed a million people. Conscripted a million people. Um, and that was in the 60s. So the fascist government openly promoted vigilante violence. There was a famous massacre of a thousand peasants by Guatemalan soldiers who were effectively owned by United Front and who lined up and machine-gunned the peasants into trenches at a plantation. Armas would be assassinated by one of his guards, and a succession of violent fascist leaders would follow. One even said, If it is necessary to turn the country into a cemetery in order to pacify it, I will not hesitate to do so. Remember this when American politicians talk about illegal immigration and not letting immigrants into this country. <laughs> I believe it was VP Kamala Harris who had a nice meeting in Guatemala about a year ago where she told anyone thinking of emigrating to the United States, do not come. Yep. Do not come. Yep. Yep. So I'd like to read a brief excerpt uh, from, uh, well, I guess at this point I'll say my main sources for this episode, once again, The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot. Excellent book. Uh, Killing Hope by William Blum. I used a very tiny bit of C. Wright Mills, but usually through other works. And then uh, the statistic I gave about the 1960 to 1990 deaths in Latin America versus the Soviet bloc is from The Jakarta Method by uh, Got it. Um, Vincent Bevins. I gotta read The Jakarta Method. Yeah, and then uh, him, and then he uh, quotes that from some Cambridge journal. Which, yeah. if it's a Cambridge journal, which is very pro-West, you can believe it. <laughs> uh, yep. If it's going to paint the West in a bad light. Um, so I'm going to read from the um, from Killing Hope by William Blum, just a brief section at the end of his uh, part on the Guatemala coup. Thus it was that the educated, urbane men of the State, State Department, the CIA, and the United Fruit Company, the pipe-smoking, comfortable men of Princeton, Harvard, and Wall Street, assured each other that the illiterate peasants of Guatemala did not deserve the land which had been given to them, that the workers did not need their unions, that hunger and torture were a small price to pay for being rid of the scourge of communism. Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. terror carried out by Castillo Armas was only the beginning. It was, as we shall see, to get much worse in time. It continued without pause for more than 40 years. Yeah, I mean, sounds about right to me. Yeah. You know, sucks Gotta to suck, Guatemala, profits. but looks like you're going to have to have 40 years of uh, bullshit. Yeah. Dude, that, <gasps> was, that was a hell of a story. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. The Guatemala and Iran, those were the first two big ones. Yeah. Yeah, it would get much worse, much worse. Really? Uh, Indonesia being the uh, the real pinnacle when, yeah, they killed a million people in Indonesia to stop the communists. Jesus. Yeah. Did they at least, like, try to figure out who was a communist? Or was it just, like, 
Oh, oh, by crazy. communist, I mean, like, anybody with even, whose family member had ever been friends with a communist. That's how you kill a million people. Yeah, they're, I mean. They're pretty vague uh, associations. Here's the thing. Look at Indonesia now. Not communist. Yeah. They uh, virulently anti-communist, as a matter of fact. Yeah, they, they, they got not the big point fans. across. Well, yeah, when, you know, when there's an entire history of you, if you even talk to a communist, that you get disappeared and thrown into a fucking mass grave. Right. Going to think that you're going to try to avoid it. Sounds about right. <coughs> yep. That was an awesome one, man. Thank you. That was really good. Yep. Trust me, it only gets more bleak from there. I'm excited. Yep. Because here's the thing. I love this level of bleakness. <laughs> this uh, dystopian world is ending nonsense. Yeah. Uh, when you find out that it's our own government doing it to ourselves, yep. and just selling her citizens away, it's like yeah. it's awesome. I love it. Just murdering tens of millions of people mm-hmm. globally. And if I see anybody not, when I see people not flying the American flag, it makes me want to yeah. fucking burn their houses down. Yep. So sure that's just does. Me. Yeah, that's just me. All right, anyway, uh, anything you would like to add? No, I don't think so. That was pretty comprehensive, and uh, no, I I don't think I have anything else to add. All right. Well, uh, folks, please, uh, as we always say at this point, rate and review us on uh, your app of choice, Spotify, Apple, whatever. Uh, It really helps with the algorithm. Uh, Please tell people about us, your friends, your family, your loved ones, your your neighbor that you hate, um, (laughs) anybody, yeah. Uh, And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm Evan. I'm Cam. Yep. Been joined by uh, by Cam, and uh, I guess we will see you next time. Yeah, absolutely. On left, on red. Yes. <laughs> that's see our ya. show. That's that's us. Yeah. Ain't nothing. I'm not saying what I did was all right Trying to break out of the ghetto was a day-to-day fight Being down so long, getting up didn't cross my mind But I knew there was a better way of life And I was just trying to find You don't know what you do till you put under pressure Cross 110th Street is a hell of a tester Across 110th Street Pimps trying to catch a woman that's weak Across 110th Street Pushers won't let the junkie go free Across 110th Street Woman trying to catch a trick on the street Talk to y'all about right now. Hey, brother, 
has a better way out. Shorting that coke, shooting that dope, man, you're copping out. Take my advice, it's either live or die. You got to be strong if you want to survive. The family on the upper side of town will catch hell without a ghetto around. And every city you'll find the same thing going down. Harlem is the capital of every ghetto town. Let me sing it. Across a hundred and ten street. Trying to catch a woman that's weak Across a hundred and ten street Wishes won't let the junkie go free Oh, across a hundred and ten street A woman trying to catch a trick on the street Ooh, baby Across a hundred 